When we finished the book of Revelation, I suggested that we go into 1st and 2nd Corinthians, primarily because they're the last two books that I have not done on notes on the New Testament. And I think I may have been using the wrong criteria, uh, because I have been battling ever since we started, and it's like there's just a brick wall in front of me. So I've been praying for some redirection all through the time we were in Australia. I was praying for uh, where we need to go, and I think we're going to go into the book of Daniel. So tonight you have notes on the book of Daniel, and really Daniel's a logical follow-up to the book of Revelation. Um, and I think very relevant to the time that we live in. So I've got 25 notes, so there should be plenty for everybody. All right, so if you have your Bible, hopefully you'll have it. Open your Bible to the book of Daniel. And we're going to really tonight just get an introduction into the book. <clears throat> the book of Daniel, most of you know, uh, is one of the major prophets. Daniel, of course, was a contemporary of both Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, of course, being earlier, but overlapping. Uh, while we go into this study, we're going to have to do a lot of looking at the book of Jeremiah. We're going to have to look at the book of Ezekiel. We'll be looking at other books, which I'll mention tonight. Obviously, one of what is called the major prophets. They're called the major prophets, not because they were more important, but because their prophecies are longer. The book of Daniel is actually called the key to biblical prophecy, particularly future prophecy. When we get into the events that we're actually witnessing right now, events that are on the horizon, um, getting toward the second coming of Christ, the book of Daniel is critical. Of course, it also lays out the time of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ 500 years before he came. You know, people always ask for a proof that God exists or proof that the Bible is the Word of God. All you need to do is look at prophecy. Anyone who is open to just look at the prophecies that are given and the fulfillments and people who know nothing about prophecy and nothing about history say, well, it's all just coincidence. Well, you can't predict from a thousand years to 500 years before the coming of Christ into the world the time, the place, the manner of his life, where he would grow up, everything about him, including his crucifixion and resurrection. You can't prophesy those events clearly stated just by accident. Uh, we're not talking about Nostradamus. If you read the prophecies of Nostradamus, they are so vague that you could apply them in a million different ways. They never relate to precise time. They never relate to precise geographical location. They never relate to precise individual personality. We have all of that in prophecy. So Daniel is a book of prophecy, and it's really the key to the book of Revelation and the key to events that I believe we are moving rapidly toward in world history. So as we open to the book of Daniel this evening, it's important for us to ask God's blessing on our time together, recognizing that as we confront his word, we're standing on holy ground, and we come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray for his blessing before we enter into our study of the book. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather ourselves together this evening, we do so in obedience to the command that we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. In fact, we're told to do it so much the more as we see the day approaching. And as we look at the world around us today, there's nothing in history previous to this time 
and in fact nothing outside of prophecy that even closely relates to events that we're seeing and even where those events are going to lead. So Father, we open this book with great humility. We recognize that we are approaching your presence as we enter into this book. We realize that we need God the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and insight and understanding. We pray, Heavenly Father, that our souls will be humble and receptive and eager to receive the truth that you have for us tonight. Let the Lord Jesus Christ receive all the praise and honor and glory, and may God the Holy Spirit have complete control of everything that we do this evening, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. When we enter into the book of Daniel, we need to get just a little bit of background. Of course, Daniel was in the first captivity that went out of Judah into Babylon. We're going to have quite a bit of information about that tonight. Um, Daniel is uh, a book that divides easily into two sections, and you have an outline there on your first page. And the first section is the first six chapters. And I've given it the title, Servants of God in a Hostile World, because I believe that the reason God recorded the struggles and the victories of Daniel and his three friends were to give us an example and to give believers an example anywhere in history under any kind of hostile situation, how to meet and cope with that situation. And this could also be called history from human viewpoint. In other words, we're looking at history from ground level. So servants of God, and we have in chapter 1 and 2, standing firm in the faith. And we're going to see Daniel and his friends convicted to live and to stand by the truth that they knew. Even though they were in a hostile environment in a foreign country, far from their home, they stood firm. And we're going to see why that happened. And then as we go into chapter 3 and 4, standing firm in freedom. And of course here we have the... Uh, Great image that Nebuchadnezzar made, the demand that they bow down to it, and uh, the incident in the fiery furnace. And I think it illustrates for us the fact that no matter what people do to you, and we talk a lot about freedom today and the fact that we're losing freedom. You only lose freedom when you give it up. Freedom is something that you either claim and hold on to and live by, or it's something you relinquish. And these three young men in the fiery furnace chose to live free even if it brought about their death. And then in chapter 5 and 6, standing firm without fear. And here we come, of course, to the third great incident in the testing of Daniel and his three friends, and this is Daniel in the lion's den. And we see that some of the officials, Daniel was raised to the highest levels of government in Babylon. We see that some of the officials became very envious. And in their envy, they wanted to bring him down. But they couldn't find any fault with him. He wasn't corrupt. He wasn't, you know, being taking money under the table. He wasn't doing anything out of line. They knew that the only thing they could attack him for was his faith. And so they appealed to the king. And you'll remember the story that they tried to make a law that no one could pray to any god but the king for 30 days. The king, of course, felt highly honored. And this appealed to his arrogance. And we're going to see there are so many lessons that relate to human interaction in the book of Daniel. And in that particular situation, you have people envious because they're inadequate. They can't measure up. They can't produce the way Daniel produces. They can't compare to him, and therefore they give in to envy, which is the deadliest emotion known to man. 
It was envy that killed the prophets. It was envy that killed the Lord Jesus. And it was envy that killed Stephen. And then, of course, envy that brought persecution against the Apostle Paul. So there is no human emotion deadlier than envy. What we find is that inadequate people tend to gravitate to arrogant people. The inadequate people will puff up the arrogant people and they will try to uh, form a, uh, an alliance uh, against whoever it is that they want to attack. And in this case, it's Daniel. He ends up in the lion's den. And of course, God protects him. Then we have the second section, the son of man over the kingdoms of the world, not the servants of God in a hostile world in the first six chapters, but the son of man over the kingdoms of the world. And of course, the reason that Jesus chose to use that title, son of man, is not because it was used so much in Ezekiel, but because of how it's used in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we see the appearance of the Son of Man, and it's evident that this is God, what we know as the second member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is seen as Him whose going forth has been from everlasting, because He is eternal. So the Son of Man over the kingdoms of the world takes up chapter 7 to 12, and here we look at history from divine viewpoint. And this is where we get into all of the history between the Testaments. And then that's kind of a preview of the history of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In chapter 7 and 8, the Son of Man is the King of Kings. In chapters 9 and 10, the Son of Man is over God's people, watching over, providing, caring for them. And in chapters 11 and 12, the Son of Man is coming in his future kingdom. So this is the basic two-part outline to the book. As we look at chapter 1, in the first eight verses, we see really what is the key to the book. And that is the attitude of Daniel. And I believe that it was Daniel who sparked the idea in his three friends without his leadership, without him being willing to step forward first, they probably never would have done it. And you know, none of us ever know when we take a stand how many other people are on the sidelines or standing at the back of the room or just waiting for someone to take a stand which they can then join. Not everybody is a leader and there's nothing wrong with being a follower as long as you follow a good leader. Daniel took a stand, the three friends rallied around him and through his devotion, his dedication, his faith, his commitment, they were strengthened to become heroes in their own right. And I think that's a beautiful part of the story. Before we get into the first, well, let's read the first eight verses here. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, there are two problems with verse 1. One has to do with Nebuchadnezzar being declared king, and the second has to do with timing. And I'm not going to go into those tonight because I wanted to get into the introduction and into the book, but we're going to waltz our way slowly through this book. And when we come back next week, I'll explain to you what look like uh, contradictions in the Bible. Jeremiah has something a little bit different than what we have here in Daniel. How can that be? The Bible can't contradict itself. Well, it's very easy to reconcile those things if we really study it, and I'll show that to you next week. Verse 2, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. Uh, this was like a great victory for Babylon because it was like, see, now we have the instruments from the temple in Jerusalem and we put them in the house of our God, which proves our God's better than your God. 
It says he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God, and the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. This was, as I pointed out, the first deportation, the first of three. We'll see more about that in a minute. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. So basically, they want to take the flower of the nation, bring it into Babylon, and basically get them to accommodate Babylonish culture, Babylonish language, and if possible, even Babylonish worship. But of course, that's not going to work. Verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies, of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. This is what we might call three years of brainwashing. They're going to go through a re-education program. And it says in verse 6, From among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We'll get into the meaning of their names and how those names are changed next week. Verse 7 says, To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, a name, by the way, again, that honors their God, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. They changed their names. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. You're a young captive. You're taken to a foreign country. <clears throat> they tell you that they're going to change your name from a name that honors the God of Israel to a name that honors the God of Babylon. What do you do? We'll see. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart, and this is why I say Daniel took the leadership role at this point. He was the one who first had the courage to stand up. Uh, estimates are that at this time, Daniel was probably 15, 16 years old. A young man. And yet he had the conviction to take a stand, knowing that it could cause him and his friends all kinds of problems. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, what was the problem with the food that the king allotted? Because he was actually allotting them the best of the land. They were getting the cream of the crop. They were getting from the king's table. What the king ate, what the king drank, they were having made available to them. So what was the problem? You can think about that for a little while, and we'll get into it in just a moment. I want to pause just long enough to play a little bit of a mind game. We're going to have a mind game, and then at the end of class, we're going to have an exercise of the soul. Imagine that you're in Daniel's place. You're 15, 16 years old. You've watched the decline of your nation, or maybe you're not imagining yourself. Maybe you have children or grandchildren that are 15 or 16 years old. Imagine them being in a situation where they've seen the gradual decline of their nation for 50 or 60 years or more until it comes to the point where a foreign power invades, <laughs> takes over your country, completely destroys your capital city, demolishes and defiles your temple, and then takes the cream of the crop of the nobility as a slave. Imagine that you or one of your children or your grandchildren is in that place. What would you be thinking as you're led away 
they chained the captives neck to neck and they led them away in what was called the, the death march from Jerusalem to Babylon, about 500 miles, marching, being driven every day, being mocked, being scourged, being beaten, having fun made of them all the way, and we'll see how some of that comes out. What would you be thinking? And you believe that you are one of the chosen people. And you believe in a God who has made promises to your nation. And you believe that He is faithful. How do you reconcile all of that in your mind? That would have been the challenge that these young men had to face. And Daniel came through beautifully. And if I can do nothing more tonight, I want to try to show why. Why did he come through the way he did? What was it that gave him his spiritual poise and wisdom, discernment, insight, and courage? The, the scriptures that they... They would have relied on what they had been taught. For some of them, I think what they had been taught might have been taken for granted and all of a sudden they realize this is what it's all about. It's just like a whole lot of people are going to do in the United States of America. Because with the scenario that I've just given you, you're living it. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah warned Judah for 40 years that if they didn't turn back, they were going to be judged. And they laughed at him and they mocked him and they put him in prison, they put him in stocks, they threw him in pits. They did everything they could. There were assassination attempts against his life. And then all of a sudden, he was proved true. And the nation fell. And after 40 years of warning them what was going to happen, and them laughing and mocking, all of a sudden, as they see the Babylonian forces breaking through the walls and pouring into the city, they realize Jeremiah was right. I think we're in a similar situation today. I think if we really understood what was going on, we would be much more alarmed than what we are. Both Michael Yon and Matt Bracken, both very, very skilled military men, highly trained, one a special forces, one a uh, Navy SEAL, uh, have pointed out from a military point of view what's going on in our country. We have tens of thousands of single fighting age males. They're not coming with their wives and they're not coming with children crossing our borders every day. Matt Bracken said that there is a military division crossing our border every day. Just within the last week or two, journalists at the border have asked some of the people coming in, why are you coming here? One guy said, you're going to find out real soon. Another guy was asked, why are you here? He said, I'm here to fight. He said, who are you going to fight? And the guy wouldn't answer him. So, it's pretty obvious. When these people come in, I'm sure you're aware of this, it's not really a secret, they receive a telephone, an EBT card that's filled up $3,000 per month. They get free board, free room, free education. Their children get free education. They get free health care. I don't know of a single American citizen that has that kind of a deal. This is an orchestrated planned invasion. Now, people like me and others have been warning People much more prominent and well-known than me have been warning, if America doesn't turn back, we are going to go down. But what you and I are watching in real time is the answer to a question that has plagued prophecy students for decades. Why don't we see America in the book of Revelation? The answer, we won't exist. As a nation, as a, an entity worthy of consideration, this nation is not going to exist. 
So we're watching and we're living in a time very, very similar to the time of Daniel. And I don't say all those things to scare you. I do hope that it stimulates you to realize if we lose everything, you know, it's, it's nice to have preparations. Say, well, I got a nice house. I got food stored away. I've got plenty of water. I can defend myself. I have all of these things, which is all well and good. What if you lose it all? What if all of a sudden you're standing in the street in your bare feet with nothing in your hands? Would you be able to still be victorious? That's what Daniel and his friends illustrate for us. And this book is going to teach us that it's possible in the very worst of circumstances to be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. That's what we're going to see. Jeremiah gave a final message to these captives as they were being chained neck to neck. I believe, like many other Bible expositors, that while the captives were being prepared for the long march, Jeremiah preached one last message to them. In the smoking ruins of Jerusalem, he gave them hope, he gave them encouragement, and he preached what you and I know today as the book of Lamentations. Listen carefully just to a couple of verses. Jeremiah says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, her lovers being false gods, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and harsh servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. A little bit of historical background helps here. Judah had been playing a treacherous game for decades. She would run to Egypt when she was threatened by Assyria. And she would get supplies and she would get security and she would get promises from Egypt because Egypt hated the Assyrians. Whenever Egypt threatened Judah, Judah would run to the Assyrians and she would make promises to the Assyrians and they would trade the riches of Israel with the Assyrians and funnel funds to them in order to get them to help protect them against Egypt. And she had gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth over and over and over again. Think about America. I know most of you don't have the advantage that Nan and I have traveling all over the world, literally to every corner of this world. We have an image of ourselves. The world does not hold that image. The world sees us as a treasonous, traitorous nation. We have betrayed every ally we've ever had. Did you know that? Every single one of them. We've turned our back on them in one way or another. We make deals with this one against that one, and then we make deals over here with this one against that one, and we have been a very, very treacherous country. I know as Americans, we don't like to hear this. As an American who's proud of my country, I don't like to say it. All I can tell you is travel around the world. I can remember early on in my missionary travels when you went into a country, if you had anything, uh, uh, ink pen, that said made in the USA, you could give that to someone and it would be prized. Anything that was made in the USA was sought. They believed that we made the best of everything. They believed that we were everything that we hold ourselves up to be. I have to tell you, after 40 years of traveling the world, that attitude is its still out there, but it's much, much more rare than it used to be. Now there are many people 
who still love America, but they love us with tears in their eyes. They love us saying, we thought that you would stand for us. Right now in Nigeria, I don't know if you know this, there have been at least 5,000. This is a very, very conservative estimate. At least 5,000 Christians killed for their faith around the world just this year. The majority of those, the most dangerous country is Nigeria. They are being slaughtered. I remember being in Nigeria teaching a group of Christians, and I remember telling them that America was in decline, that America was turning its back on God, and that if America didn't turn back to God, we would soon be judged. You cannot imagine the terror that came across their faces. You know what they asked me? If America falls, what will become of us? They depended on us. You know what country that was? Nigeria. Do you think the people in Nigeria, where the majority of Christians have now been slaughtered for their faith, still believe that? I don't think so. It's a tragedy, but it's true. <clears throat> so Jeremiah, as he spoke to those captives getting ready to go to Babylon, he was honest about what was going on in the nation. He had been honest for 40 years. He had been warning and warning. And he spoke of things as they really were. But he also spoke words of comfort. And he brought light into the darkness. And if you look at the bottom of page 2 from the book of Lamentations, he said, this I recall to my mind. Now just imagine being Daniel or one of his friends. You're standing there with a chain around your neck, linked to the person in front of you. You know you're never going to see your homeland, your family again. You know that you're going into servitude. And you hear these words. Don't you think you would latch on to them and cling to them with all your might? He said, this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. A string of 15, 16, 17, maybe 18-year-old young men heard that statement. Many of them latched on to it. They made it their daily meditation and contemplation. It became the foundation of faith for these captives. You think about, for example, the daily meditation of the unknown author of Psalm 119. If you go through Psalm 119, it was believed to have been written by one of the captives as they journeyed from Jerusalem into Babylon. And over and over again, you hear reflections, basically, of what Isaiah and Jeremiah had taught. Think, for example, of the song of the captives in Psalm 137. I won't read the whole psalm, but you remember the passage. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And I think it's very interesting that in that 137th Psalm, it talks about by the rivers of Babylon, because the second captivity, the second deportation, carried captives among whom was Ezekiel. And it's very interesting that as Ezekiel gives his prophecies, and by the way, Ezekiel is giving prophecies by the rivers of Babylon. He was with the canal workers that were kept out by the rivers that were digging the canals. He didn't even live in Babylon. Whether he and Daniel and the others ever met each other, we have no way of knowing. 
But he was not taken into the city. He was taken to the canal works, the slave labor that was digging the canals out by the river. And so you can imagine hanging your harps by the rivers of Babylon. There you are in a slave camp. Your job every day is digging canals to run water to the fields of the Babylonians. And as you watch the fields grow and the crops come, and there you are, exhausted and wasted and hungry. How difficult it would have been. I mentioned the author of Psalm 119. Think about what he said in verse 67 and verse 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, as much as I hate to say it, I think it's going to be good for America to face the discipline of God. I don't look forward to it. I think it may be harder than we imagine. Again, I don't discount that God could yet deliver this country. I believe if there was a wholesale turning to God on the part of the people of this country, I believe that he would rise up in a mighty way and he would demonstrate his power and he would deliver this nation even yet. And we all ought to pray for that. And we can continue to hope for that. But should that not happen, could any of you have imagined, could you have imagined five years ago that we'd be where we are today? Do you know that our federal government just made a declaration of war on Texas? They've declared that they're going to use federal troops to go and drive out National Guard. And our Supreme Court, with three recent supposed very conservative justices put on the court, you know what they declared? They declared that the state of Texas has no right to defend itself. And in essence, the Supreme Court ruled that the Texas National Guard cannot protect the nation. They have to stand back and allow the floods of illegals to come in. Governor Abbott has said that they are not going to do it. He has stationed Texas National Guard along the border, particularly in a uh, critical area, Eagle Pass. I heard one journalist say that they heard talk among, because there are U.S. military troops on the Texas border, and there are Texas National Guard troops on the border. And this guy said that he heard among U.S. military troops, if this comes to a shooting war, we're going to defect and join Texas. Because this is not what the American people want. A nation without borders is no nation at all. And actually, it's enshrined in our Constitution that one of the few responsibilities of the federal government is to protect the United States from invasion. And of course, they're not doing it. So, before I was afflicted, I went astray, now I keep your word. I believe this, and I think this is the, the first and the greatest lesson to get out of the book of Daniel. Number one, nothing can touch you but what God permits. Nothing can touch each and every one of us. If we're his child, there's a hedge of protection around us. We're under the guardianship of heaven, and there's nothing that can touch us without his permission. If something touches us, what can we conclude? He gave permission. Why would he give that permission? For our benefit and for our blessing. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's what the author of Psalm 119 wrote. And he may have been one of those young men standing in that line, chained together, whose life had gone off the rails, who had drifted away from the truth, who had gotten caught up in the daily atmosphere of Israel at the time was eat, drink, and be merry. You know, it was like anything goes. It was like, we're free, we can do whatever we want. And yet here this young man writes a record for all posterity. 
what happened to me was a good thing because it brought me back to the truth of God's word, to a right relationship with him, to a serious look at what life is about and why I'm here and what God's plan for my individual life really is all about. So at the beginning I said put yourself in place of Daniel and his friends and ask yourself if you have the spiritual poise, discernment, and courage that they had. The reason I do this, and this is what I call the workout for the soul, thinking on that theme and thinking how I would respond if I was in that place and asking whether or not I would have the spiritual resources to take a stand, to face the threat, to live by faith and not give in to fear, it could be a dry run for what is in our future. So I think we all need to be serious. Uh, I think we need to think carefully on these things. As it says in verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart. He made a commitment within himself that he would not defile himself. <clears throat> and next week we'll take a little bit more time to look at the question, why would he, you can be thinking about this through the week, why would he stand against the diet and not the name change? Why would you let someone give you a name that honors a false god but reject to eat the best food that came from the king's table? We're going to look at why next week and we can think about it in the meantime because I'm going to close at this point. You might have some questions or some comments. <clears throat> I know messages like this are not pleasant. I know we don't like to hear bad news, but you know, bad news is what prepares us for the good news. Until a sinner knows the bad news and knows that there is no hope for them, that they're on their way to a godless hell for all eternity. And people like to say, well, I'll be with all my friends. No, if you study the scripture and study the descriptions of hell, you are isolated by yourself for all eternity. You are in the dark for all eternity. You have nothing to do but reflect on the Christ that died for you. And by the way, everybody in hell will be a believer. Every single one of them. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And the tragedy is they will know who He is. They will know He is everything Scripture said He is. They'll know He's the Savior who died for them. And the problem is they acknowledged it too late. What a tragedy. What a horrible, horrible thing. And frankly, I believe that's what's going to make hell what it is. You know, it talks about fire, you can talk about darkness, you can talk about isolation. I can't think of anything worse than knowing He loved me, He went to the cross, He suffered the most horrible death, He suffered the punishment of God for my sins, and I scoffed at Him and mocked Him and turned my back on Him, and now here I am and I have no one to blame but myself. So I'm starting to preach. So I'll quit. Let's pray. If you have any questions or comments, we'll talk about them. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the marvelous example of these young men who faced all the power, the most powerful nation on earth. By the way, the most brutal and uh, cruel enemy that anyone could ever have in the Assyrians. I mean, they were so horrible that when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, he, he ran and took off across the ocean because Nineveh was part of Assyria. So, Father, help us not only to consider ourselves and where we are in our time of history, but help us to realize there are people all around us who do not know where they'll spend eternity. There are people around us who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People who don't realize that they are sinners before a holy God, and they have only one hope, and that hope is to simply accept and receive the love and the grace and the mercy that God offers to us because of the penalty and the judgment 
that Jesus Christ endured. So, Father, we have a mission. We have a purpose. We have a reason for being on this earth. Help us to fulfill that mission to give light in the darkness of this present generation, to give hope to people who are hopeless, to give strength to the weak, and to do everything that we can to lift up, encourage, and strengthen those around us. We thank you for allowing us to play a part in your plan. Help us do it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.